Welcome to International Tax Bites, a series of conversations around issues and concepts in international taxation. I'm Graham Jackson, and I'm a Gibraltar and English solicitor with Hassan's international law firm in Gibraltar. Today, I will be speaking to my podcast partner, Harriet Brown, who is a Jersey advocate and English barrister with Old Square Tax Chambers in London. So, Harriet, here we are for episode four of series three of International Tax Bites. And today, we're going to speak about economic substance rules, which have in recent years emerged across the globe. And just before we got together in, uh, to, to record this, I did a little bit of research, as that's, you do. That's not like you, Brian. That's not true. I always do a little bit of research. <laughs> I never do much research, but I just sort of had refreshed my memory about it. And I Googled economic substance rules and economic substance test. And there, the, literally the top result on my Google search was a web page from taxadvisormagazine.com, an article written by a very fresh-faced young barrister, Harriet Brown, M.A. Cantab, which goes on all about um, the economic substance rules that were introduced in recent years. So I think, dear listener, we are in the presence of an, a published expert. And Harriet is going to take us through economic substance rules that have grown up in the uh, CDOTs and the, the jurisdictions that responded to the EU pressure in recent years. So just before I do that, um, Graham, Graham has just, and he's promised he's going to delete it from the recording. I was telling Graham a story about when I learned, when I had, when I had to learn French to pass my Jersey law exams. I'm now going to tell another little anecdote, which is a bit more relevant. This is the second time in as many weeks that somebody has mentioned an article to me that I'd completely forgotten that I'd written. <laughs> So somebody, somebody said, oh, I read your article on Barker and Baxendale Walker the other day. And I so it's like, really? What article would that have been then? So I don't remember writing this one either, but hopefully I remember everything that was in it. <laughs> so I think what, we, what we're saying is Harriet has short-term memory loss, but, <laughs> but the base information is still in there. And Graham has just sent me the article. Thank you very much, Graham. That's very helpful. <laughs> Okay, so, so you see, you're seeing how this podcast functions, dear listener. Um, it, we sort of we just chat for a bit, don't we? Anyway, Harriet. So let's just uh, establish the political background to these economic substance tests. The EU, in I think 2016, when it was publishing its uh, grey lists and black lists that we've talked about previously, um, focused in on the ability of companies to establish themselves to register in low tax jurisdictions without having any physical presence there and they found that to be problematic did they not um they did but if i may i'd like to go a little well actually quite a lot further back than 2016 and the eu and via the beps project which we seem to not be able to get through an episode without talking about, which is not totally surprising, um, to the 1998 OECD report on harmful tax competition, an emerging global issue. Um, which, which for, the, for, for, the, for the listeners, is essentially the base document for all the international anti-avoidance regimes that have come in since 1998, right? It, it is, and also quite a lot of the sort of political manoeuvrings to prevent or to encourage, let me put it this way, to encourage low, lower tax jurisdictions to um, behave in ways that higher tax jurisdictions preferred. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's so, probably to say. Tax 6 is a response to that. CRS is a response to that. Um, the economic substance rules is a response to that. A lot of the things that we've spoken about are a response to that initial report and then the developments that came after that. Uh, exactly. I mean, in, in many ways, it is sort of the, the ancestor of the BEPS action plan yes. as well. So we sort the of... BEPS action all... plan is a way to deal with the problem that's described in the 98. Uh, exactly. And so the 1998 report was actually quite keen on a substance test way back when, 
Um, and it, it all sort of disappeared. And I've actually, I've got a, I've got a nice history of it, which you can find on the OECD website, which I'm not going to go into in too much detail. But essentially, um, when the OECD was releasing its, or rather the, 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 the harmful tax element of the OECD, released its, uh, its first sort of list of uncooperative jurisdictions, it, it was around this time that the economic substance test was sort of dropped. The, the, that, the harmful tax paper from 1998 looked at four key, um, four key areas, which was um, no or low effective tax rates on income from geographically mobile financial and other service activities, uh, with a regime ring fence from domestic economy, uh, a regime that lacks transparency and no effective exchange of information with respect to the regime. So you can see some of the elements that we've mentioned developing there. Um, so that, so we, we, if you remember when we talked about um, the global minimum tax rate. Yes. And we read out that statement that said that tax havens have now been abolished. If you remember that, the, that definition, that four part definition is the definition of a tax haven that they that OECD believe they have now solved. That is the definition they were referring back to in that statement. Exactly. And, and back in about 2002, when they first in this, so um, these were these were factors used to assess preferential regimes. And they pretty much just dropped that that first one, this con, uh, dealing with this first one, this concern about uh, the regime not having income tax on geographically mobile financial and service activities. And so that is really where the substance test comes in. And then the OECD in 2018, when they released this report that I'm talking about, uh, following BEPS 5, because this is all sort of, if you want to look at it in the action plan, this is all dealt with in BEPS 5. They, they wanted to bring that economic substance test back in for preferential regimes but there was a concern that if they brought it back in for preferential regimes, they would then be pushing people towards just plain low tax regimes. Yeah. And so it needed to cut across both. And that's where you get this economic substance so they, uh, so from. We've used a lot of initials and, um, and things there. So but in summary, in 1998, they published a, they published a, the OECD published a report which established the definition of a tax haven, which was a four-fold test. The economic substance rules, or a, an ancestor of the economic substance rules, was in that as a solution. It got dropped, then it got brought back again. It was initially in a narrow in a narrow way that focused only on preferential regimes, but they, before doing that, realised that all that's going to happen then is it'll just shift the problem somewhere else. So they've now expanded it. To anybody who's got a simple, low or nearly zero corporate tax regime. Pretty much, yes. And the only thing that I think we're missing, and I'm going to ask you to explain this, um, just for anybody who doesn't know, what is a preferential regime? So a preferential regime is, well, I mean, simply a regime that gives a preference to a specific type of um, entity. So... A classic example of, an, of a preferential regime is what would have been classed, what we in Gibraltar would have called the exempt company regime, or in um, the Caribbean would have been called an IBC, International Business Corporation. It's a corporation which basically says, I am registered in your country. I am tax resident, not necessarily tax resident, but generally they would try and be tax resident in a jurisdiction. But as long as I do not do business in your in your country, I do not pay tax in your country. So the, the classic Gibraltar regime, which is basically just an IBC, was it couldn't have, it couldn't be owned by a local, it couldn't do business with, a, with locals um, and it paid a tax or a, a fee, an exempt uh, fee, which I think when I very first came in was 250 pounds. Um, but then that went up and then that was abolished. That regime was abolished as a result of uh, EU um, state aid investigations because it favours non-local regime, non-local entities uh, or entities that don't trade locally. And that, we don't so want to talk about state aid, state aid, it has the effect of favouring an international 
business rather than a local business. And of course, it, it attracts international business because the jurisdiction in question is still getting its taxes from the businesses that operate locally, but yeah. is able to attract investment into the jurisdiction by offering this preferential regime. I know Jersey used to have something similar to IBCs. I think they were called exempt companies as well, but I cannot remember at this distance. And initially, Jersey, and I think also Guernsey, replaced that with something called Zero Ten. To yeah, try we got to Zero Ten as well. Fix it. It didn't work, and that was only those provisions were only in Jersey for, um, I think, a year. I think they were in effect for a year, yeah. and it finally settled on having defer, effectively a deferral of tax, so that um, I think lo local businesses paid it at the shareholder level, possibly. Anyway, that's that's by the by. Um, but yes, yeah, so that, that other other jurisdictions looked at payroll taxes, looked at um, so abolishing corporation tax and charging a tax on number of employees that you have. That was that was possibly considered by some people, and um, then those jurisdictions like Gibraltar. That, that see the thing is, our base taxation system was a territorial system anyway. So like Hong Kong. Had we consistently applied our um, taxation system as it had been originally designed, then um, the problem wouldn't have arisen, as we, I'm sure we'll talk about one day when we talk about um, uh, state aid questions around Gibraltar. But it's it, as long as you're consistent with your with your taxation system as designed and you don't fiddle with it, you're in a much stronger position than you are if you graft something on the top of it. And that's essentially what a preferential regime is. It ring fences exactly like you just pointed out how you ring fences a specific type of entity from the rest of the economy uh, yes and i think the only thing there that we may want to explain is a territorial system of tax so that is if the most common taxation system applies tax based on both the source of income within a jurisdiction and the residence of an entity within that jurisdiction. So when we've spoken previously about how source jurisdictions charge tax and um, the residence jurisdiction charges tax on, the, on a worldwide basis, and it's like a two-track system, a territorial system simply charges tax on, on entities which source their income within this jurisdiction and residence is not relevant to the taxation system. Is that As you say, examples of Gibraltar and Hong Kong. Hong Kong, Gibraltar. There are others. <laughs> oh. St Helena. The other, other territorial tax-based jurisdictions are available. <laughs> they are. There's bits of territorial systems still left. So Malta's got some very similar language. And basically all the ex-British territories have got that as their original position. And then they've moved um, later on. But that's the history of... British colonial taxation systems and not economic substance rules. So let's come back to economic substance, because I think we've talked a little bit about some of the approaches that jurisdictions, lower tax jurisdictions tried to take yes. um, in order to sort of meet these concerns about them, about preferential regimes and or being a low tax jurisdiction. But BEPS, BEPS initially said, no, that's not enough. And then in 2016, the EU said, no, that's not enough. And this is where we get our economic substance requirements from. And they've come in into a lot of jurisdictions since sort of about 2018, 2019. Um, and so interestingly, and I, I am now, I have to I have to confess, looking at the, the article that I wrote that Graham very kindly sent to me, uh, Guernsey, Jersey and the Isle of Man have taken quite a coordinated approach together to this indeed they introduced uh, i think they have joint guidance on they do have joint guidance yeah so, they also um, uh, to, to, to be fair as somebody who's read a lot of economic substance guidance they have the clearest guidance that i've read which is not a comment i make i, can't, I don't generally compliment guidance but theirs <laughs> is really quite good on this well, three heads were better than one, or anyway, three three departments were better than one from three jurisdictions. So, and Gibraltar doesn't have an economic substance test, is that right? No, because we, uh, so it, it, this is driven by the EU Code of Conduct Group, or this particular form of economic substance rules that we're talking about is driven by the EU Code of Conduct Group. We'd, or, Gibraltar had already been subject to an EU Code of Conduct Group, and there are some litigation in, in the EU courts that changed the position of our with a, generally around our passive income regimes 
but there are re there are historical reasons why we don't have this particular economic substance um, test like Jersey, Guernsey, and Isle of Man. And it's also important to note that lots of other lower tax jurisdictions do have, because I mean, I think for, for the EU adjacent or EU involved jurisdictions, it's been more important because of that 2016 position that the EU took. But equally, Cayman Islands, BVI and, and Bermuda all also have similar yeah. laws. Certainly all the CDOTs have got almost identical legislation. And by CDOT, I mean Crown Dependency and Overseas Territory. Because that's interesting because that hardly ever happens that one of them comes up with something and then all the others come up with the same thing independently. Mm, maybe it was handed down. Because <laughs> <laughs> the BVI's legislation is exactly the same as um, Jersey Guernsey Isle of Man. Um, uh, it, it does happen and frankly in a lot of respects particularly with something very regulatory like this that has to comply with yeah. certain requirements from the OECD and or the EU. It, it doesn't make an awful lot of sense to reinvent the wheel. No, and I mean, there is there is an organisation that covers these territories that maybe had a hand. Yes, yeah, and, and that's very well worth um, bearing in mind as well. So what do they say, Harriet? What do these rules say, given that we can talk about a single unified um, thing? Okay, so on in that on that basis, I'm going to do this by reference to the Jersey legislation. And one thing that is interesting to note is that, sorry, before I come to the Jersey legislation, the OECD took into account the fact that they may not, that the, the jurisdictions that needed these rules or that they wanted to have these rules may not sort of have the tax oversight necessary to enforce them. So they are specifically potentially administrable by financial services regulators rather than tax authorities right. and so you tend to find that they don't fall within the sort of tax legislation so for example jersey's tax law is largely restricted to the income tax jersey law 1961 these rules don't come within that they're their own law from 2019 and it's the taxation companies hyphen economic substance law yeah so, so it yeah. is, so it, these it, jurisdictions, sorry to just talk for a second, these jurisdictions tend to have developed financial services regulators because they have large financial services uh, industries that need regulating, but they don't have highly developed income tax offices because they have low tax rates and don't need to collect a lot of tax. So the, the financial services regulator is much better placed to overview to have oversight of this. Um, exactly. So, um, by reference to the Jersey legislation, which is, as I understand it, and Graham tells us, uh, very similar, This the, the first thing to note is these economic substance rules tend to only target certain types of activities, banking, insurance, fund management, finance and leasing, headquartering, shipping, holding, so holding companies, IP, um, distribution and service centres. So these are the sort of businesses, certainly that the OECD identify as being mobile. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so, so we've got what the distribution and service centres ones would seem a bit odd to somebody who doesn't understand. Um, that's because what we we'd be if I was structuring a global internet business i would be establishing my distribution center business in a low tax jurisdiction and then operating distribution centers and trying to avoid the permanent establishment rules in the in the in the jurisdiction in the higher tax jurisdictions yeah. exactly yeah. yes so that's so it's a it's a consequence of an our uh, much earlier episode in series one about permanent establishments. So it, it makes sense. That but they're included. It would seem insane, wouldn't it, to operate a, a distribution centre from the BVI in France. But it, it does make sense. <laughs> it, it does. And um, the other thing to note is, other than these sort of quite specific ones, like I think the distribution service centres and the headquartering ones, there is a big focus on financial services. Yeah. Uh, so there's the focus on financial services and then there's sort of the other category of IP, which is something that international tax 
finds quite difficult to deal with. It's highly mobile, isn't it? It's it, it's yeah. completely intangible, and you know, and and it's to be honest, it's the big news stories are always around structures that have an IP holding company somewhere that's taking out as much as is possible out of a real business that people can see on the high street. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's it. It's the intangible versus the tangible, isn't it? And yeah. Yeah. Yes. That, you know, we've all seen the stories like so-and-so insert name of coffee shop pays no tax in the UK, but it's got 10,000 shops. Um, so that, that does strike people as being odd. So it's like this is a problem we need to resolve, and these 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 things are targeted at real life problems that people are aware of. Okay, so shall we look at what the economic substance test actually requires? Let's do it. So um, a company resident in in Jersey, which is our example, but as we've said, a lot, most of the legislation is very similar across these these jurisdictions. Um, it meets the economic substance test in relation to a relevant activity if it is directed and managed in Jersey in relation to that activity. And those activities are the ones that you've just listed. They are, yes, those are relevant activities. Um, so that's the first one. The second one is that having regard to the level of relevant activity carried on in the jurisdiction, there are an adequate number of employees in relation to that activity who are physically present in the jurisdiction. Okay. And they can be they can be um, employed by the resident company or by another entity, and they can be temporary or long term contract employees. So you they can outsource it. It doesn't have to be a direct employee, but it, it has to be in the relevant jurisdiction. Physically in the relevant jurisdiction, yes. Right. Okay. So. Seats. Right. So let's just unpack that test a little bit. The. Jersey company, because that's the example we're using, has to have sufficient people to do the job that it is doing on the relevant activity list. Yes. And each of those activities is different, right? So I guess holding, being a holding company, requires less people than running a distribution centre. You would hope, wouldn't you, that there would be some sort of, yeah... Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm actually just looking at what the uh, guidance, the, the joint guidance for Guernsey, Isle of Man and Jersey says on that. We've sort of been discussing the extent to which different um, sectors might have a different number of employees necessary. Um, and so, Graham, I think you, you were talking about... Can you give us an about... example? Can you give us an example from the guidance of what would be the relevant number of people for a specific business? Unfortunately, the guidance doesn't really give any guidance on the number of bums on seats that you would need for right. any specific activity. But I think were I advising, which we're absolutely not doing in this podcast, but were I advising on this, I think it's completely fine to look at it and say the number of people you would expect to be carrying out, say, banking activity might be different to the number of people you'd be expecting to carry out activity in relation to intellectual property or indeed a holding company. Yeah. So it, 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 it is going to be a matter of fact and for something to have economic substance and, and meet the requirement for economic substance, it is going to differ dependent on the sector and indeed the, um, the those relevant activities and those core income generating activities of that business. Okay. So, so that's, that's the employees. We then get adequate expenditure incurred and adequate physical assets in the relevant jurisdiction. Okay, so if, if you're, if you're let's, for example, imagine a company that develops, that owns the intellectual property for computer games. And if I remember rightly, it's basically aimed at, it has to, the company has to have sufficient um, substance to develop and maintain the intellectual property so it needs developers on the island and it needs to have a big enough office for those developers to work in and it needs to spend sufficient money to really do the job of developing the intellectual property that's what we're saying yes yes that, that is broadly what we're saying and so particularly for ip 
this is going to be quite different. Again, if you look at the finance businesses, that's probably an easier sell. Yeah. Um, but for something like IP, that is that is more difficult. Well, I mean, so to, to use example of a, of a small Caribbean island, you're not going to find enough computer programmers on a small Caribbean island to develop your world-leading intellectual property. So it's, it seems unlikely. And they're unlikely to move there. So I think it's it, that IP particularly is very effective. I think this is a very effective test for intellectual property. Yes, when you get to things like holding companies and certain aspects of financial services, I think it, it's less pertinent and less focused. Yeah, I mean, what, what, I mean, I, I know it doesn't say in the guidance in any great detail, but the question that came into my mind is what do you actually need to be a holding company other than the things that you would have to establish tax residents anyway? Um, so I, I think that, that, that this is a tool which is used in more cases than it is actually effective at, but that doesn't stop it being a good piece of legislation for the things it is effective at. Exactly. Yes, I think I think that's probably right. And of course, those holding companies, they are probably going to be affected more by other aspects of legislation arising out of the BEPS project than this. So exactly. it is Things sort of like non-resident capital gains tax that was introduced in the UK that neutralised the effect of just plonking your company in Jersey, Guernsey, Isle of Man, wherever, um, and holding lots of property in London and then sell it and selling the company, not the not the property so yeah exactly and and also things like reporting requirements i think are going to be a more effective measure to address holding company so so that the higher tax jurisdiction has the tools to trigger its anti-avoidance precisely rather than um so i think what we're actually driving at is a description of and over these episodes that where we talk about anti-avoidance there is a bundle of um provisions that you cannot judge on their own you should judge together um to see whether they're whether they're effective or not i i I would entirely agree with that and i think that's really sort of the base erosion and profit shifting project had 15 action points it wasn't going to be one thing and like you say they are more that they have to be considered as a whole rather than in individual chunks. Right. Okay. So what we know then about the um, economic substance rules is that we have uh, they have to meet a test, which is that they have sufficient economic substance to basically carry out the job on that list of um, relevant activities, which are all generally around intangibles, holding. Things that service provision our businesses, yeah, and um, and they have to be in the in the relevant jurisdiction. Yeah, if you make your budgets, you're probably fine, and you don't need to worry about it. Yeah, so it's also, you know, this is not just a story of um, of big countries demanding tax off entities registered in smaller countries, because this, in a sense, protects the tax sovereignty of the smaller jurisdiction, because it says here is an example where it works. It's the cheating that they're... That we don't like. That we don't like. If you're going to do it properly and you really are going to have a tower block full of people working for you, then we respect the boundaries of your territory and we won't come and neutralise the effect of your tax law. Uh, yeah, I suppose that is one one very positive way of looking at it, Graham. If you're a small jurisdiction, <laughs> yes, this is this. Well, yes, I can see that. Um, so, yeah, I can see that. So, I mean, the, the the smaller jurisdictions that establish entire industries in them, like say, for example, Gibraltar. I mean, where I'm sitting, it's literally about a hundred meters to the cent- to the headquarters of some really really big gaming companies, and they have hundreds if not thousands of people working in their in their buildings um, isn't it about 100 meters to everywhere else in gibraltar from where you're sitting sometimes it's 200 meters <laughs> <laughs> but but you know what i'm saying so those businesses because they have real substance are protected by this provision yes yes um, I, I, can, I can see what you're saying yes yeah 
Yeah. And so then we do have some other requirements as well. We're not done. So there's, there's a concept of a core income generating activity and all of the company's core income generating activities have to be carried out in the jurisdiction. OK. Uh, core income generating activity is a defined term. And so it's different for each of the businesses. So a couple of examples, banking. These would be raising funds, managing risk, including credit, currency and interest risk, taking hedging positions, providing loans, credit or other financial services to customers, managing capital and preparing reports and returns to the, in this case, Jersey Financial Services Commission um, or any equivalent body or entity relating to the supervision or regulation of the business. Then what's another good one? Finance and leasing, agreeing funding terms, identifying and acquiring assets to be leased, setting the terms and duration of any financing or leasing, monitoring and revising any agreements, managing any risks. And just to pause there for a minute, there is just a touch, particularly in that one there, that um, settling the terms and duration of any financing or leasing, there's just a touch of the double tax agreement provision on agents there, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This idea of being able to sort of contract on behalf of the company. Yes. So it so you stops you establishing a permanent status somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and so shall we just have a look at our sort of our, the one that we said it's um ah oh, here we go. Holding companies. Do you know what the, what the um core income generating activities for a holding company are? Holding things. I've no idea. All activities related to the business. So they just say everything. If you're a holding company, you've got to do everything here to have substance. Right. Okay. But but this is the problem. What is the business of a holding <laughs> company other than holding things and making decisions to buy things and sell things? So essentially, they're saying you've got to have your board of di- you've actually got to have your board of directors in the jurisdiction. You can't play games with residents. You really have to do it. I, I think so. Yes. I mean, that doesn't really seem to add anything to the test for resident. Well, to the to to some of the domestic tests for residents does it no um, um but i'm yeah, thinking maybe maybe some jurisdictions were playing games with their own residence definitions uh possibly possibly so they, so they closed that door or they would have done something to to change the the definition of residence so they just shut the door before 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 it was uh, kicked open um what's the ip one? Oh, ip bear with me a second uh taking strict so in respect of intellectual property holding businesses, taking strategic decisions and managing the principal risks related to development and subsequent exploitation of the intangible assets generating income, taking the strategic decisions and managing, as well as bearing the principal risks relating to acquisition by third parties and subsequent exploitation and protection of the intangible assets, carrying on the underlying trading activities through which the intangible assets are exploited, leading to the generation of revenue from third parties, Research and development, branding or distribution. Okay, there's a lot in there, isn't there? There is, but what there isn't is the actual development of the IP. You have to take the strategic decisions and managing the principal risks related to development and exploitation, but you don't actually have to do the underlying development. What you can't do is just simply have it transferred to you from another entity somewhere that's developed it and done all the legwork. Because you've not exactly, yes. yeah. So it, I think you don't necessarily need to have all of your developers sitting in Bermuda, but what you do need to have is the person who's sort of making the decisions, the, the core decisions to borrow a word on that in Bermuda, for example. Yeah. Not that we're picking on Bermuda. Um <laughs> wait, do you know do you know what I found out the other day? Sorry, this is entirely off topic, but what I found out today, sometime in July. International Tax Bites was in the top 20 podcasts, all podcasts in Bermuda. We've got a lot of listening listening tax people of Bermuda. We're very great. Thank you so much. We're a top 20 podcast. Anyway, that's an aside. So (laughs) now, so we've established, have we not, that you need to um, do one of the relevant activities. You need to have sufficient economic substance to do that relevant activity and you have to have your core income generating activity in 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 the relevant jurisdiction so yes so you're only you're only brought into these rules if you carry out one of the relevant activities if you don't do one of those you don't need to meet your economic substance test if you do need to meet your economic substance test um you have to sorry i've ended up looking at um self-administered funds you have to 
be directed and managed in the jurisdiction. You have to have you have to have sort of enough of a physical presence, which is measured by employees, expenditure and physical assets in the jurisdiction. To carry out your core income generating activities. Yeah. And then you have to have all of your core income generating activities. So what was that about? You have to be managed in the jurisdiction. So it has to you have to have your management and control. You have to be directed and managed in the jurisdiction in relation to that activity. So that's to that relevant activity. So, okay, so, so, you, so, okay, so they smuggled in. Um, you have to be tax resident in the jurisdiction and not anywhere else, effectively. Directed and managed is not the same as centrally managed and controlled. And of course, some jurisdictions will not have a central management and control test. But there's going to be a huge amount of overlap, isn't there? Yeah, there is. It's very close. So they want to narrow the field, don't they? They want to keep it as t- as tight as possible. You're doing as much as possible in the jurisdiction. You're not just there for convenience's sake for a tax rate. Well, it is substance over form. Yeah. Okay. So are there any other layers of tests that we have to get through to meet the, to satisfactorily meet the um, substance test? No, not really. There's, a, there's, there's two corollaries. So the first one is... If you have core income generating activities carried out outside the jurisdiction for the company by another entity, the the company in the jurisdiction is able to monitor and control the carrying out of that activity by the other entity. So if you outsource your core income generating activities, theoretically, you can have them outside of the jurisdiction. But you have to have sufficient substance to properly monitor so uh, yeah, pro- yes. So sufficient substance to give proper oversight, I think, is probably. So you can't correct. simply just say, "Crack on." My decision is to appoint Mr. X in. Crack on, yeah. No. to do this for me, and that's the last decision I ever make. It would seem not. No. Right. Okay. <laughs> so, um, what happens? if you don't meet the economic substance test. I had a second corollary. I'm really oh, sorry. Sure. Yes, a second corollary. I'm not even sure that's the right word. Shall I check? Difficult to I... say with your teeth in. <laughs> <laughs> so the second point is this test of directed and managed in Jersey, this is given some flesh on the bones in the legislation and you satisfy that test if your board of directors meet in the jurisdiction at an adequate frequency having regard to the amount of decision-making required at that level. It's, it's not much flesh, I have to say. I don't find that terribly helpful. The directors have to do their job properly. Yes. Um, okay. A quorum of directors is physically present in the jurisdiction. Oh, that's Jersey. interesting. That's interesting. So people have to fly to Jersey. You can't ring in. Apparently not, no. Uh, the minutes of those board meetings record the making of strategic decisions of the company. Which they should do anyway. Yes. The directors of the company have the necessary knowledge and expertise to discharge the duties of the board. So So if you're a big financial services company, you can't just appoint corporate director number one limited. No, it would appear not. But again, yes, quite. And... You have to keep the records of your board meetings in the jurisdiction as well, which doesn't which you're obliged to do anyway by the the registered office rules. So I think really that this test to a properly run company doing everything that it should be doing, it doesn't add anything. What it adds is an extra dimension of difficulty, uh, cost, and misery if one fails to, fails to do things properly, essentially. Yeah, but so, yes, for those, as ever, those who are doing things properly carry the burden of people that don't do things properly. It's, I think it is important to stop abuse. Um, if, if there was actually as much abuse as the EU maybe thought there was in 2016, because things had been moving in that direction over time anyway, hadn't they? They had, yeah. I mean, this is, yeah, this is tying up the ends of a long process. Yeah. And um, regular listeners to the show will will recognise that noise. That's the noise of my dog flapping its ears. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so we've got to this point. So we've got we've got through the um, through the test itself. What happens if you don't comply? So the sanctions fall into several different categories. There is 
exchange of information with competent authorities in other jurisdictions, financial sanctions, say penalties, and then uh, the ultimate penalty being struck off. Right, okay, so your company can be dissolved by the registrar ultimately if you don't comply. And the first step is that they will just, what, tell relevant jurisdictions these people aren't complying? So it will be it will be an exchange of information for every period that you fail to meet the economic substance requirement. Um, and what information do they exchange? Right, let's look at what information they exchange. <laughs> First of all, let's start with who they exchange it with. They are going to give information to the competent authority in the country or territory of residence of a holding body, the ultimate holding body of the company in the jurisdiction that hasn't complied, um, and the jurisdiction of residence of an ultimate beneficial owner. Okay. Um, so it's going to all the people that if you're trying to hide something... Care about it. Yeah, exactly. So the information that's going to be exchanged, um, if you if you fail to comply, Harriet, what is it? So this is a bit complicated. And essentially, the controller will make a, a, an assessment of whether or not the economic substance test has been met. And there is a requirement for a resident company to provide any information reasonably required by the revenue authority in order to assist that authority in making a determination of whether or not economic substance test is met. If there is a determination that the substance test isn't met, the information that will be exchanged is essentially anything that the comptroller has or required to be provided that led him to that decision. So he's just gonna pass everything over? Yeah, essentially that looks like what it is, provided that he asked for it um, on a reasonable basis. Right, okay. So he can't ask for, I don't know, lunch receipts, but he can ask for lists of employees. So what constitutes reasonableness in the context of administrative oversight is a really interesting question. So, and to step away from economic substance here for a little bit, in the UK, in relation to decisions that, say, HMRC can make, there's a range of decisions. So there is sort of recently, there's a House of Lords, House of Lords, there's a Supreme Court decision called Tooth, which talks about when a discovery assessment has been made. And this cites an earlier Court of Appeal case called Anderson, which says, you can't make, if you make an unreasonable discovery, it's not a discovery. And the principles that you apply are sort of similar to the principles that you apply in judicial review. So we are really looking, so it's, in that context, what, what the Supreme Court has endorsed is an approach which says for it to be reasonable, it has to be reasonable in, on an administrative law basis. So things like it proportionate, um, it, can't, it can't be done on a random basis, um, sort of it can't be Wednesbury unreasonable. So it's quite a high bar. But then again, in the UK, I have seen case law in relation to duties, which said, oh, there's nothing in the legislation which says that this decision has to be reasonable so they can make any decision they want. So it, there's, there's sort of a, a, a broad approach to this reasonableness requirement. And in my experience, courts do tend to start from the basic position that decisions made by revenue authorities are reasonable. And you have to show quite a lot of evidence of unreasonableness or quite right. Level of unreasonableness. So, for example, if they decided that they were going to um, find that everybody who had red hair had red-haired employees didn't meet the economic substance test, that would certainly get over the bar. But other things, other other decisions which might seem a bit unreasonable, might might not. So, being difficult is not the same as unreasonable. I think that's what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, and that's why Harriet's a barrister, because she can give five minutes on any topic to do with the law at <laughs> a moment's notice. Uh, okay, so we've worked out that they're going to exchange, any, well, exchange is not the right word. They're going to provide information. Yes. The information. There's no, nothing's coming back the other way. There's no on exchange. <laughs> no, um, so they're going to provide all the information that they have. That's the first step. So that will allow the home jurisdiction of the relevant entities or persons to trigger their anti-avoidance rules and to 
basically ignore the existence of the company the company in the relevant jurisdiction. Exactly. And to look at it on a practical level for a moment, because the things that the Revenue Authority will be considering to decide whether or not it does meet those substance requirements are things that sort of look pretty similar to, say, a residence test and things like that. It's very, or permanent establishment or having, say, um, or having, yeah, a, a, an independent agent or an, a dependent agent or something like that, yeah. because they're very closely aligned with those. Of course, this is information the other jurisdiction is going to want because they say, well, it hasn't got any economic substance because it, you know, it doesn't make its decisions there. So it's centrally managed and controlled somewhere else. And we think it's here. So just for a second here, this information provision is actually quite odd, isn't it? Because normally an information provision or exchange agreement either goes through a frame, an international framework like DAC 6 or um, a multilateral instrument or a tier. But here we've just got a provision that just says, I'm just going to send stuff wherever it goes. Yes. And in, in some ways, this is a bit more like I, I think this is more akin to those very, um, very ill-defined spontaneous exchange provisions so it's, it's unilateral because it's in domestic law as you say and being unilateral to me it looks much more like a spontaneous exchange provision than the ones that we're more used to dealing with yeah so let's imagine we've got i don't know i think is it there are some jurisdictions that aren't part of any of the multilateral information exchange agreements one or two literally or two, not many and we're not going to say what they are uh, because I, I, I can never be sure I keep changing <laughs> um, but the um you could imagine couldn't you that, that this sort of like jurisdiction that doesn't do any information exchange could suddenly receive a package of information from Jersey or Guernsey or or wherever theoretically yes because that's what they say they're going to do yeah and if, if they have say an ultimate beneficial owner resident there yeah. So I guess the US might be a good example. Because they don't they don't involve themselves with anybody exchanging information, do they? If they can help it. Um, well, they said they, they certainly they, they like to do it their own way as a bit. <laughs> let's let's put it that way. Yes. Um, OK, so that's the first step. The second step, if we said we said there was three. What's the second step? Uh, financial penalties. OK, so fine. And I think. Um, it, it's it's unfair to say that it is um, a next step because I think you can have information exchange and financial penalty sort of okay. coextensively. And then finally, you the, the registrar just dissolves the company, it ceases to exist, and all the assets. I'm, I'm guessing if the rules are the same as they are in Gibraltar, all the assets revert to the crown. It's not very good, certainly. You don't <laughs> want that if you're if you own a company. Um, yes, I mean, it is that that is the ultimate sanction and is potentially far more serious than it might initially sound. You know, well, you have a new company. No, it doesn't work like that. It's a very serious sanction indeed. Yes. Yeah, so so this kind of punitive dissolution <clears throat> to just ask the question that's just literally just popped into my head with a pu when you have a, a company get st struck off by um, request for not filing its annual return or something like that and then it, and it sort of accidentally the uh the assets go revert to the crown um bonavacantia that's the phrase i was trying to remember bonavacantia the crown isn't interested in maintaining the assets and they will accommodate um returning those assets to the rightful owners eventually that they're, they're not out to keep it and make a profit but where we have this sort of punishment going on, would they take the same approach? The That's answer a is that, question. I've just plucked that one out of the bag. No, uh, it's, it's an interesting question, and the answer is I don't know. I mean, we've come yeah. to the bit where um, where we where we we've decided that we need to meet this test. We need to have sufficient economic substance to carry out the core income generating activities of the business, and if we don't, then we. Uh, there's information is provided to the relevant jurisdictions there can be a fine and ultimately the company can be dissolved by the registrar that's actually quite a heavy set of um, provisions it is potentially yes I mean and it's worth saying in the Jersey provisions the maximum penalty for failure to meet the economic substance test is a hundred thousand pounds 
which is a big fine. It, it, it's substantial. It really is substantial. It may not be in terms of the amount of assets um, that are being held, but in, in the great scheme of things on a, on, a, on a list of fines, that's pretty big in my experience. Uh, no, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the biggest fines that I've ever looked at um, in a non non high tax jurisdiction was about a quarter of a million quid when a single trustee had thought it was only going to get one fine for failing to file its CRS return on time. And it was doing a lot of trustee documented trusts. So it had lots of lots of different it thought it, it, its view was it was making one return on behalf of everybody the revenue authority considered it had made as many returns as it had trustee documented trusts and so they were quite small individual fines but boy did they add up yeah so i mean the, the fines for dac six the polish fines and luxembourg and the netherlands are quite high as well so anyway, I think we've dealt with the general outline of economic substance tests and we've wandered down some um, cul-de-sacs as well tonight. <laughs> um, this is what happens when we record in the evening. <laughs> Normally we record on a Saturday morning and we're all sort of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, but now we've both had, a focus. <laughs> both had a full day at work and uh, uh, having a bit of a chat was more, more what we were interested in. But um, <laughs> so... Economic substance tests are a really important tool in the in the international fight against uh, abusive tax avoidance, and I think we've 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 shown, and in my experience, they're having a real effect. Uh, I don't know if, if if you're seeing that as well, Harriet. Um, I, I think I think they are absolutely. I think they are, and I, again, I, I'm sure. Well, I am actually sure that wasn't the reason they were brought in, but I think they do potentially have a positive impact in small offshore jurisdictions because businesses that want to be there are going to have to focus themselves and centre themselves there in a more meaningful way. And so yeah. that has all sorts of pos potentially positive outcomes for smaller jurisdictions. So, so that's the that's the less clients, more quality um, sort of argument that the <laughs> sort of avenue that jurisdictions go down when they're trying to to get away from the classical 5,000 companies all registered in one building type approach. Exactly. And really that that is largely not going to be possible anymore, certainly not for these types of businesses. Yeah. So, I mean, these are the types of businesses that do need substance. So anyway, um, as ever, this is just a conversation and is no substitute for proper tax advice in the relevant jurisdictions. Harriet, it's been a delight to speak to you as ever. Thank you very much for your time. Um, and... We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>